Hello and welcome to A History of Hannibal, episode 72, Completing the Conquest. I'm back. It has been probably about a year since the last new episode, and I'm very sorry about that. Now, this is to all intents and purposes a family-friendly show, so it would not be in the best of taste for me to unleash the torrent of profanity I would dearly like to about a certain few companies, which have caused this show to be beset by a myriad of technical difficulties. But, thanks to a tremendous amount of help from three people in particular, Jordan Harbour of the brilliant Twilight Histories podcast, as well as listeners Kevin and Mike, these problems have been dealt with. In fact, should they wish to take me up on it, I'd like to say thank you by putting out a podcast episode for each of them on a subject of their choice. Seriously, guys, thank you. The show would not be back without you three. I want to get straight back to the history, but I feel like I need to say a few words about just what has gone on. Um, I've released new feeds, which are these ones, which is why, if you are a new listener and you're listening to this, you may think, what are you talking about, Jamie? It's been, I don't know, about two weeks since the last new episode went up. Well, episodes 1 through 71 were originally recorded at various dates between 2012 and 2014, so that's why the... um, a lot of what I say doesn't really fit in with the timeline compared to when they're released in this feed on iTunes. But I'm back to normal. This is the first back real episode. So let's just get on with it because I'm sure you want to find out just what's going on with Hannibal. So where were we? The year is 208 BC. The place is Baikula, Spain, where Scipio Africanus fresh off his astounding capture of New Carthage, is making his assault on the base camp of the Carthaginian commander Hasdrubal. As soon as the Romans arrived in the territory, they began their attack. It was nothing but a skirmish. But enough to demonstrate the contrasting morale of the two forces. Nothing else happened for the rest of the day, and that night, Hasdrubal withdrew to the top of a nearby hill. He had a river behind him, and was well defended by the hill on the other three sides. But this was not a move which inspired confidence. Scipio supposedly said that these walls the enemy were clinging to were no higher than those of New Carthage, which they had just taken. It was a hard slog up the hill, particularly once they came in range of the missiles, but Scipio led the troops onwards himself. The Romans still hadn't reached their years of great expansion when the legions would truly become unstoppable, but you can see in this particular instance one of the many reasons they were to be so successful. They were well-disciplined, relentless. No matter what you did, the legions just kept coming. Once they had managed the worst of the climb, and were on relatively level ground, they made short work out of the lightly armoured Carthaginian troops. Scipio split the command with his deputy, Lilius. The centre would continue their relentless march. Lilius would take a group around the right wing to look for an easier ascent, while Scipio would do the same with the left. This was highly successful. Scipio struck the Carthaginians in the side, something which was a problem, but manageable. The situation became less manageable when Lilius soon after hit them from the other side. This caused serious disruption, obviously, as the Carthaginians tried to reorientate themselves to face these threats. 
though enough disruption that the Roman centre was able to then arrive and smash into the Carthaginians. In writing this, I'm very strongly reminded of the Battle of Hastings. The Carthaginians and Anglo-Saxons hold the high ground, the Romans and Normans trying to get through. The Romans were very unsuccessful at breaking through the Saxon line and suffered heavy losses, until William the Conqueror was able to cause enough disruption by feinting retreat to break the line. Here Scipio managed to go one better than Aegon, wait, no, than William. Had his centre just advanced, it would have likely been overwhelmed and defeated, but Scipio was able to cause enough disruption to mean that when the centre advanced, it turned into a rout. It was a disaster for Hasdrubal. Livy states that 8,000 Carthaginians were killed, and that the Romans took another 10,000 prisoner, along with 2,000 cavalry. One of these was the nephew of Massinissa, and he was allowed to be returned to his uncle. Hasdrubal fled along the coast with the intention of joining his brother Hannibal in Italy, but as we already know, he would never make it. Maybe if the Carthaginians had been smart and rebuilt their navy over the course of the war, but I'm sure you've heard enough of me complaining about the lack of a Carthaginian navy over the previous 70-odd episodes for me to need to get into that much here. As we saw in the previous episode, the Carthaginians had not done the best job of keeping the Spaniards loyal, and so they loved Scipio to bits and flocked to him. He had been very lenient with returning prisoners of war to the Spanish tribes, and after the battle, this caused them to proclaim Scipio king, a word so hated by the Romans. Scipio refused to accept the honour, instead saying that the highest title he would accept was Imperator, quite ironic, really, when you think about what that title would mean in the future. That is the story, as reported by Livy, but I'm sceptical. If you will allow me to take off my narrator cap and wear my historian cap, Bearing in mind, as always, the context within which Livy was writing, everything he writes about should be viewed through the lens of Augustan politics. Perhaps Livy is setting up precedent for the actions of Caesar and Augustus by extension. Mark Antony offering the diadem to Caesar in February 44 BC was a very controversial moment in Roman history, and this would set up a precedent both for that and for Caesar's refusal not to mention Augustus's own refusal of the dictatorship. It was a great connection for the imperial family to have, and it is also a very noticeable piece of writing. Livy has a flair for the dramatic set piece. Michael Grant goes as far as to say that Livy should be viewed more as a novelist than a historian. This is over-exaggeration, but is still a fair point. In the days after the battle, Scipio had to decide what to do next. He would not follow Hasdrubal, instead fearing what Margo and Gisco, the other two Carthaginian generals, would do. What they did was briefly join with Hasdrubal to work out a plan. Gisco was of the opinion that the far west of Spain, around Gades and the Atlantic, was sufficiently loyal to the Carthaginians. Margo and Hasdrubal did not share this optimism. Hasdrubal would march into Italy, partly to join Hannibal, and partly in an effort to get the Spanish troops he still had as far away from Scipio as he could. Margo would give his soldiers to Gisco, while he travelled to the Balearic Islands to raise auxiliaries. Gisco would advance to modern Portugal to maintain the fight with his troops, and the Numidian, Massinissa, 
would try and cause as much disruption as he could along the Mediterranean coast with 3,000 cavalry. Should you wish to revisit Hasdrubal's doomed journey, you can catch him lurking in northern Italy at around the midpoint of episode 66, Looming Spectre, to follow the path to the Metaurus. But we are not going to focus on that for now. We have Scipio. He decided to winter in Tarico, which brings to a close the events of 208. 207 would begin with a flurry of Carthaginian activity. While Gisco lurked on the Atlantic coast, Carthage sent a general named Hanno across from Africa to replace Hasdrubal. Hanno joined up with Margot, who, with his freshly raised troops, began forming a new army in Celtiberia, known to you and me as Central Spain. To combat this, Scipio sent a deputy named Marcus Silanus with 10,000 infantry and 500 cavalry. While the going was tough, Silanus marched with great speed, and was able to reach Celtiberia before word had arrived that he was even marching there. Silanus learned that he was about 10 miles away from the enemy camp, which was itself divided in two with a road between. On the left side was a camp of 9,000 raw Celtiberians, while the Carthaginians were on the right. The Carthaginian camp was well fortified, but the Celtiberians were not accustomed to this level of warfare, and security was lax so this would make the more obvious target. Solanus advanced, staying on the left and out of the way of the Carthaginian outposts. They found a valley about three miles away from the Celtiberian camp in which they ate while they secured their supplies. They were then able to advance, ready for battle. When they were about a mile away, the Romans were finally spotted. It must be noted that the terrain was very scrubby and movement was difficult. This didn't affect the Romans very much. They were heavy infantry, and would just advance. The Celtiberians, on the other hand, were light troops, more used to skirmishing. Their inability to strike and then quickly pull back left them sitting ducks for the Roman assault. And it was another big Roman victory. Hanno and his force were captured, while many of the Celtiberians were killed. Margot managed to escape with 2,000 troops and fled to join Gisco at Gadez. This was not quite a decisive battle, as in it did not win the Romans the war or drastically change the picture of events, but it is nonetheless important. Spain is a pretty big country, and the wars between the Romans and the Carthaginians had mostly been contained to the coast. What this did was stop the war from spreading north, as it convinced the Celtiberians that they did not want to get involved fighting Rome. It is certainly interesting to postulate what would have happened had the Carthaginians won this battle. Would the Celtiberians and the other tribes of the interior have joined with the Carthaginians, raised more armies, and started a far more prolonged war in Spain? It wasn't to be, at least for the moment. It would take the Romans the better part of 200 years to conquer Spain, but those wars are beyond the scope of this podcast. So, Margot joined Gisco in Gades and Solanus returned to Scipio. Scipio was delighted at how well Solanus had done and turned his attention west, to the Atlantic coast, with the intention of bringing the war in Spain to a close. Once Gisco got word that Scipio was advancing, he tried an interesting piece of strategy. Realising that Scipio was going to relentlessly pursue his army, he decided that keeping it concentrated was risky, and so 
dispersed his men around the area. This made Scipio pull back. It would not be a particularly difficult task to capture the towns of the region, but it would waste too much time, and he wasn't particularly keen on just letting the Carthaginians control the region. His solution was to give 10,000 troops to his brother Lucius, and let him handle the situation. Lucius made for Oregonis, a town Gisco had liked to use as a base. He tried negotiating their surrender, but the natives were unwilling, so Lucius launched a siege. After setting up earthworks, Lucius launched a not particularly successful attack, but when he sent in reinforcements, he spooked the natives. They were concerned that if the Romans took the town, they would kill whomever they found, regardless of if they were Carthaginian or Spaniard, so the Spaniards opened the gates and let the Romans in. It was very calm, there was no sacking, the Carthaginians were captured and the Spaniards left in peace. About 2,000 Carthaginians were captured or killed. Scipio was very pleased with his brother's work and sent him back to Rome with the captured Hanno. It was now too late in the year to make an assault on Gades or the rest of Gisco's scattered forces, so Scipio wintered in Taraco, bringing the events of 207 to a close. We now move on to 206. Gisco used the opportunity of the pause in action to reinforce his position, and together he and Margot were able to raise a force of about 50,000 infantry and 4,500 cavalry. This presented a very big problem for Scipio. He didn't feel comfortable that he had enough Roman legionaries to be able to defeat the Carthaginians on their own. This meant that he would have to use auxiliaries. He needed enough to be able to defeat the Carthaginians, but not so many that should they turn against him, he would be destroyed. That was, after all, what had happened to his father and uncle. Scipio sent Silanus to take over the troops of an allied tribe, about 3,000 strong, bringing his total force to 45,000. He advanced to Castulo, and then on to Baikula once again. As they were setting up camp, they were attacked by the Carthaginian cavalry, suddenly appearing, being commanded by Margo and Massinissa. Luckily, Scipio had expected something like this, and had stationed a squadron of cavalry behind a nearby hill. Once the Carthaginians were attacking the working parties, this cavalry unit struck. This disrupted the Carthaginians, who sent more troops in, so Scipio sent in his light infantry, so the Carthaginians sent in more troops until quite a battle was going on. Scipio eventually had to send in the legionaries to sort out this mess, and the opposing force was duly pushed back. Organised at first, but it became a rout. Not a particularly notable skirmish, but it increased Roman morale and discouraged the Carthaginians. It was, though, unimportant. Gisco wanted to assess his strength and was happy enough with the result of the skirmishes that he set out the battle. The troops stared at each other all day, then returned to their tents. You'll have seen this happen many times throughout the course of this podcast. Both armies had their own troops in the centre, with allies on the wing. Scipio noticed this deployment, and decided that on the day he would initiate action, he would flip his deployment. He started with his allied Spaniards in the centre, and his legions on the wing. Scipio launched the assault early in the morning, and caught Gisco off guard. He hurried out to organise his troops, and didn't think of changing his deployment. Carthaginians in the centre, allies on the wing. 
The morning passed, and then, late in the day, Scipio launched the assault, commanding from the Roman right wing. The centre was to advance slowly, but the wings were to advance with speed. While the wings battled, the Carthaginian centre stayed out of the action, not wanting to get involved before their own upcoming battle. This managed to give the Romans the advantage in every area of the battlefield. It was by now getting late, and the Carthaginians were weakening. They had been standing in the hot sun all day, and had not eaten or had a drink. It was quite the reversal of the Battle of the Trebia, in which Hannibal forced the Romans to go to battle without breakfast. Battles are often won by logistics. The Carthaginian centre tried to withdraw, but the Romans used this opportunity to press on, and the Carthaginian line broke into a rout. They scrambled back to their camp, when, to compound their misery, a storm broke out. They gathered stones and piled them up around the camp in an attempt to gain some sense of security, but it was a broken army. Their allies began to desert, and Gisco was left with the feeling that the only way to prevent the situation from getting more out of hand was to retreat, and he fled the following night. Scipio began his pursuit, and after an initial setback began by harrying Gisco, who fled to the hills with a mere 6,000. A pathetic remnant of his 55,000 strong army. Then things got worse. The men continued deserting as the Romans closed in. Eventually, Gisco abandoned his men and fled to Gades. Scipio left 10,000 men and 1,000 cavalry under the command of Silanus to continue the siege of those left behind, while he himself returned to Tarico. Margo also travelled back to Gades, at which point the Carthaginian army gave up and surrendered. There was no longer a Carthaginian force in Spain of any significance. Amongst all this, Massinissa began talks with Silanus and defected to Rome. He then returned to Africa to make sure that his people would follow him with this change of policy. He would be a loyal ally until his death in 148 BC. The Spanish theatre of the war was over. Lucius Scipio returned to Rome to announce the happy news, and Roman thoughts began to turn towards Africa. If you think back to what little time we've spent in Africa over the course of this series, I've mentioned that there were two powerful groups of Numidians, the Eastern Numidians, led by Massinissa, and the more powerful Western Numidians, led by Syphax. Syphax was currently allied with the Carthaginians, but the Romans felt that they would be able to pry him away from this alliance. They didn't have the highest regard for barbarian honour, and felt that they would side with whoever was winning the war. At this point in the war, 206, the Carthaginians had lost the Spanish theatre, and were almost completely destroyed in Italy. Rome was clearly in the more powerful situation. To negotiate, Scipio sent over his number two, Lilius, to negotiate with Syphax. He showered Syphax with gifts, who was very flattered, and he said he was certainly open to Roman friendship, but he would not negotiate with the subordinates, he would only make a deal with the commander-in-chief. So, Lilius sailed back to Spain and told Scipio of the situation. He reassured Scipio that Syphax had guaranteed his safety, which was enough for Scipio. He set sail for Africa, where he met with Syphax. At exactly the same time as he arrived, so did Gisco, no doubt looking to shore up Syphax's support. Syphax was rather flattered to have generals from the two superpowers of the Western Mediterranean entreating him for friendship, 
and got it in his head that he would bring the conflict to an end himself. I expect it took great restraint on the part of Scipio and Gisco not to burst out laughing at such a suggestion, but I suppose that's why I'm not a diplomat. Scipio was very polite, he told Syfax that he was not at war for personal reasons, and so this was not a matter that could be so easily fixed. And he also didn't have the authority to negotiate peace without the Senate. Syfax was probably a bit annoyed that he couldn't write himself into the history books that easily, but he asked Scipio if, at the very least, he would consent to having dinner with him. Scipio had no problem with this. And so it turned out that after just spending years fighting each other in Spain, Scipio and Gisco found themselves having dinner together, sitting on the same couch. I love the fact that ancient warfare throws up these kind of scenarios. You wouldn't really find Churchill having a polite cup of tea with Hitler, would you now? Scipio was excellent in these kind of situations, charming both Syfax and the bitter Gisco. Gisco was quite wonderstruck, actually, remarking that Scipio was an even better person than he was a general. He was also quite worried, since it was obvious that he didn't stand a chance of keeping Syfax on the Carthaginian side, and so it proved. Scipio and Syfax made an agreement of friendship, Scipio returned to Spain, which is where we shall leave things for this week. If you've enjoyed this episode, you know all the usual places to find us online, thehistoryofpodcast.com, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, and on Twitter, although since the last episode I've changed my Twitter handle, and it is now at HistoryJamie, not at thehistoryofpod. You can always send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week, when we will watch Scipio tidy up the mess the war left behind, before heading back to Italy, and eventually onwards into Africa. <laughs>